0: Last week we began studying Genesis chapter 3. You can begin making your way there again. Third chapter of the Bible. Arguably the darkest chapter of the Bible. Genesis chapter 3. We're going to continue moving through it bit by bit. This chapter, as I said last week, shows us how the world went from very good at the end of Genesis 1 to very broken at the end of Genesis 3. We saw last week in verses 1 through 5 this dialogue between a talking serpent and Eve, the first woman. The serpent's goal is simple. His goal in the conversation was to undermine the word of God. Notice verse 1. The serpent said to the woman, Did God actually say? His goal from the beginning is crystal clear. We can debate who or what this serpent is. We can't debate what he was up to. He was up to, his scheme was undermining what God had said to Adam and Eve. With with this question, this did God actually say question, he gives the first humans a new category to think in, namely that God's word could be subject to human judgment. Think of it. They had never thought this way before they'd never considered that they could, they could stand in judgment to what God had said. That they could discern whether they should do it and rejoice in it or not. But all of a sudden, the serpent brings a new category in front of them. Did God actually say? And then the, the first specific thing he asked, or says, did God actually say, verse 1, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden, is a questioning of God's generosity. The serpent is trying to make God look like a greedy and strict miser. Did God actually say you can't eat anything in this garden? That's just crazy. That's not what God said at all. But he wanted the first humans to think that God was not good. He was assaulting his word and leading them to question God's character. Then, of course, as we saw last week, Eve responds by revising God's word. Verse 2, The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. She adds to the word, that neither shall you touch it part was not in God's original command. She subtracts from the word, Two things. She subtracts the part about them being able to eat from every tree in the garden and the part at the end about dying. God said, you will surely die. She leaves out the word surely. She minimizes the absoluteness of God's judgment. She's minimizing God's generosity. She's magnifying his strictness. And as I said last week, her mishandling of God's word changed the world forever. It's no small thing when you mishandle the word of God. Now, none of us are going to get it all right every time. Amen? Do you, do you pray? Do you pray for the preaching of the Word of God? You should. <laughs> you really should. Just because I look like I know what I'm doing doesn't mean I'm infallible. <laughs> Mishandling of the Word of God has consequences that reverberate for generations. Verse 4 and 5, Satan comes back with another question. He leads Eve to question God's goodness again. Serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, flat out lie, for God knows that when you eat of it your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. This is a half-truth, and it's his way of telling her that God is holding out on her. He wants her to think that God is using them Or that he's, excuse me, that he's using the threat of death against them. That he's got this scare tactic to keep them in their place. That God is repressive and doesn't want them to know too much or do too much or be too much. That God is ultimately against them, not for them. And how many of you still struggle with that truth right now? That God is fundamentally against you, not for you in Jesus Christ. This is what he's doing. God is not for you, Eve. Do it my way, and you'll see that. You'll see just how evil He is. This is an absurd assault on God's character because remember where she's standing? She's standing in the garden of God, she's standing in paradise. She's standing in the middle of a garden that screams of God's goodness surrounded by a thousand good things that God created for her. And yet she goes along with Satan and she doubts God's goodness. Now in verse 5, I want to come back to verse 5. We're going to focus on 6 and 7 today. But I couldn't get past verse 5 without saying one more thing, if you'll allow me. Verse 5, the, uh, the serpent says, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So this is... One way that Satan is lying and twisting the truth and the allure of this part of his scheme is that it carries um, the promise of divinity. You will be like God. He's saying, do this and you will be like God. And of course the irony is that they already are like God because they're made in the image of God. He's promising them something they already have. But nonetheless, this promise is intoxicating to eat. The serpent is promising her a promotion. A godlike race to another level of existence. If you follow me, Eve, I'm going to take you to a higher plane, another level, more knowledge, more authority, more power. God is holding out on you. Follow me, and you'll see that. The way the serpent frames his promise was to cast God's command as an option, not a given. The serpent was relativizing the rule of God. In this conversation between the serpent and Eve, God is treated like a third person. The conversation isn't with God or to God, but about God. The one who created the paradise they were standing in is is completely ignored. Do you see what Satan is doing? He's minimizing and relativizing the absoluteness of God's commands. He wants Eve to think and he wants you to think that God can be disobeyed with no consequence. You will not surely die. Then also he says, you can be like God. You can know good and evil. Divinity can be yours, Eve, if you sidestep everything you know to be true. I love what one theologian says. He says, the serpent is the first in the Bible to practice theology in the place of obedience. And we need to hear this, brothers and sisters. I need to hear this. How many of us practice theology and assume assume that that takes the place of obedience. I love what, I think it's Mark Dever. Mark Dever says, you know, look, if you love reading big, thick theology books, but you're opposed to going to pick up an old lady for church, you may not be a Christian. Right? Practicing theology, knowing theology, reading all the books does not equate to obedience. The serpent's scheme was to get Eve to doubt to doubt God's character so that she would then break his word. Question his character. He's not who you think he is, Eve. And then once that settles in her mind, then his commands are optional, debatable, rather than given. And isn't this what we still battle every day of our lives? I know it is for me. Obedience doesn't seem like the thing that will bring us joy. So we come up with new versions of God, new ways of understanding what's clear in His Word to fit what we think will make us happy. The allure of the serpent's scheme to Eve And to us is moral autonomy. If she and we will follow the serpent instead of God, we'll become wise, we'll be like God, we'll be able to autonomously decide what was right and wrong, what is right and wrong. The allure for her and for us is that God no longer gets to be the one to tell us what to do. Eve will make the rules. She will now do things her way. This remains an intoxicating promise. You might have heard of Frank Sinatra's 1969 song My Way. Anybody? It's catchy and dangerous. Ironically, it's often played at funerals. I want to read the lyrics for you. The song goes like this. <clears throat> and now the end is near, and so I face the final curtain. My friend, I'll say it clear, I'll state my case, of which I'm certain. I've lived a life that's full, I traveled each and every highway, and more, much more than this, I did it my way. Regrets, I've had a few, but then again, too few to mention. I did what I had to do and saw it through without exemption. I planned each charted course, each careful step along the byway, and more, much more than this, I did it my way. Yes, there were times, I'm sure you knew, when I bit off more than I could chew, but through it all, when there was doubt, I ate it up and spit it out. I faced it all and I stood tall and did it my way. I've loved, I've laughed and cried, I've had my fill, my share of losing. And now as tears subside, I find it all so amusing to think I did all that. And may I say, not in a shy way, oh no, oh no, not me, I did it my way. For what is man? What has he got? If not himself, then he has not. To say the things he truly feels, and not the words of one who kneels, The record shows I took the blows and did it my way. Yes, it was my way. These are the lyrics of autonomy, of an approach to life that says I will do everything my way without reference to anyone or anything else. This song could easily summarize how our entire culture views life. This song, in my opinion, captures a modern mythology that has captured our imaginations in 21st century America. The mythology is this it's the unquestioned assumption that we can do whatever we want without consequences this idea that we just believe without knowing why we believe it, other than it feels right, that we can do whatever we want without consequences. Celebrating this idea at a funeral is actually quite fitting. Sinatra's song is a dirge of death. Why? Why am I saying that? Because the reason any of us die in the first place is because our first parents did it their way. Instead of God's way. And before we're too hard on them, guess who also does it their way every day? I much prefer my way. Don't you? Ironically, funerals that use this song celebrate the. The satanic spell that's killing us. This mythology that we can do it our way. Yeah, we might make some mistakes. We might have some regrets. But you know what? We're going to do it our way and it's going to be awesome in the end. God help us. May it not be so in the church of Jesus Christ. Now, let's get into verses 6 and 7. We've seen the dialogue. Serpent and Eve have had this dialogue. Now, in 6 and 7, we see the result of the dialogue. We see humanity's descent into sin. Verses 1 through 5, the dialogue. Verses 6 and 7, the descent. Verse 6, Genesis 3. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and made themselves loincloths. Satan leaves the scene. The temptation has come. Now Eve has a decision to make. She's standing on the edge of the abyss, looking over the chasm to what appears on the other side to be a life of freedom from all rule and restraint, a promotion to a better life. The serpent told her that if she will just step toward that life, somehow... She won't fall into the abyss of death if he'll just trust her, if she'll just trust him. If she'll just step towards that promised life, she'll make it over the chasm unscathed. So there she stands. There she stands on the edge of the abyss. The music fades. The camera zooms in. Moses tells us what's going on in Eve's mind the moment before she steps. It says in verse 6 that she saw that the tree was good for food. So the food, the fruit, was physically appealing. It then says it was a delight to the eyes, meaning it was aesthetically pleasing or appealing. And then finally, and most importantly, It was to be desired to make one wise. This is the greatest enticement. This is that allurement of divinity. To be desired to make one wise. Meaning that it was spiritually appealing. So it's physically appealing, aesthetically appealing, and spiritually appealing. This idea that she could have wisdom apart, apart from God's word was just too attractive for her to pass by. So the text says plainly, she took of its fruit and ate. She took of its fruit and ate. She took of its fruit and ate. This is amazing, by the way, that Moses doesn't express more shock here. The whole world changed in this moment. And Moses just says, she took of its fruit and ate. Moses, can you tell us a little bit more? He describes this horrific horrific event as simply and unsensationally as possible. It reminds us, if you'll remember, how the gospel writers describe the crucifixion of Jesus. In the gospels, you'll see, you know, they'll describe the flogging, the torture, the nailing, or or right right when you get to the nailing of the cross, of Jesus on the cross, the writer will just say something like, and they crucified him. And they crucified him. (laughs) An eternity-shaking event, and they crucified him. That's all all we get. (laughs) This is amazing. The reason I point this out in here, Genesis 3, the Gospels, you'll see it all over the Bible, is because the Bible, I'll have you know, stands apart from other religious books in that it never seeks to sensationalize. It never seeks to flower things up. Over and over again, the Bible simply tells us what happened alerting us to its historicity, its trustworthiness. So she took of its fruit and ate. She took of its fruit and ate. Now make no mistake, what Eve, Eve did here sent shockwaves through the universe. It changed everything, everywhere. Her sin, like ours, affected more than herself. It brought with it collateral damage that she couldn't have imagined. So we heard Justin read from Romans 8. Paul says that creation was in this moment subjected to futility, is now in bondage to corruption, has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. If you've given birth to a child, then this really resonates with you in your mind. What the earth is going through right now, all the earth, is, Paul says, like a woman in labor. That's not pretty. That's not comfortable. Any amens out there? Ladies, the whole earth is writhing in pain. Groaning in the pains of childbirth. Then Paul goes on to say, not only the creation, but we ourselves. So not just kind of out there in the the oceans and in the fields. But no, not only the creation, but we ourselves. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons. The redemption of our bodies. Do you... Feel that in yourself? Nobody? Two? Is there a groaning for a new body? The whole thing is groaning because of what Eve did right here. Your body and the globe groaning in the pains of childbirth. Thinking of Romans 8, John Milton wrote in Paradise Lost, Earth felt the wound, and nature from her seat, sighing through all her works, gave signs of woe that all was lost. The world and our bodies are collectively groaning because of what Eve did. As Milton said, Earth feels its wound and sighs. Earth sighs and shows us signs of its injury everywhere we look. In order to bring this out of the abstract and into our hearts and lives, I'd like to point out that this what I'm saying is why you and everyone you know is hurting. You and everyone you know is hurting. Reeling from a wound we struggle to find words for. Well, John, that's good news. Uh, Everything's broken. We're all hurting. Everything's groaning. We're groaning. What next? Is all hope lost? Do we just grit our teeth, pull up our boots, and push through this thing? What do we do about this? I would argue that Jesus saves us in order to set us loose, turn us loose as agents of reconciliation, agents of redemption, agents of healing, agents of gospel truth and grace, agents of recovery to a world in pain. Kindness is the way the world recovers. It's God's kindness, ultimately, that leads any of us to repentance. Keep that in mind as you're sharing the gospel. It's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. And, correspondingly, it's our kindness that can help someone else find their way toward the healing power of the gospel. So if you're an unkind person, consumed with yourself, No wonder no one's life around you is being changed. Because kindness is the way to healing. Kindness is what helps. Kindness means we stop talking long enough to listen and understand people's stories. It means we're curious about someone's life. It means we ask more questions. It means we... Preach less, listen more. It means we get really curious about our own stories. It's not conceit to show yourself kindness. What do I mean? Look, you're all beating yourself up all day long, and so am I. Amen? Not good enough. Failed at this, failed at that, screwed this up. Spoke harshly to my wife. Didn't discipline my kids very well. Right? Didn't work like all day long, every day. I'm not saying minimize stuff that needs to be talked about, needs to be dealt with. I'm saying look at yourself in the mirror and give yourself some of that grace that you claim to believe. Some of that kindness. Some of that kindness that changes the world. The approach of so many of us is to ignore minimize, push down, make excuses for our pain. We say things like, I've already dealt with that stuff when our bodies and our stress levels suggest otherwise. Or we say things like, what's past is past. Nothing I can do about it now. But remember what King David says at the end of Psalm 27? He says, I believe, I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. He believed that he would see God's goodness in this life. Christianity isn't only about you not going to hell one day. It is about escaping the wrath of God. It's also about the Lord Jesus coming into your life now and resurrecting your life now. Jesus himself in Luke 4 said that he came to bring freedom to captives. The effects of the fall will never totally leave us, but the resurrection of Jesus means that sad things can be undone. Do you believe that? Sad things can be undone. That healing and life are possible in this life. But this healing and this life come. And only come when we get honest enough to say what's true and then press into Jesus Christ and beg Him earnestly for His healing. And we do it with brothers and sisters. We don't try to go it alone. We say what's true and we run to Him. We say what's true, we rest in His kindness. And things start to come alive again. Dead things start to grow. Broken things start to become mended. Relationships start to be repaired. Marriages healed. Children brought home. Kindness is the way. Kindness is the way. Now, I want to shift gears... And speaking of honesty, I love what the, that the Bible includes that little detail at the end of verse 6. Do you see it? Eve took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Now, it's not like um, Adam just showed up right at this moment of truth. Verses 1 through 5 use the word you in the plural tense. So, for example, verse 1. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? That you is plural. So the serpent is talking to more than one person. You, plural, verse 1. You, verse 3, plural, verse 3. You, plural, verse 4. You, plural, will not surely die. The serpent is talking to both of them. They're both right there the whole time. Adam was there listening and watching and doing nothing the entire time. Adam stood passively by while his wife was lured away by Satan. This is what I talk about when I talk about saying what's true. (laughs) It's not to be a jerk. It's not to, you know, it's not just to make people feel bad. Let's just say what's true. Adam was there. I think of a lot of words I'd like to call a guy like this, but then I remember, I am a guy like this. You know, standing passively by while things unravel. How many of you men are struggling with passivity? Man, we inherited this stuff from our forefather. Adam, you're not alone. You're not alone. The Apostle Paul refers to this moment over in 1 Timothy 2. He's talking about roles in the church between men and women. His point is that Eve reversed the order of creation by leading her husband. And what he's doing, what Paul's doing later in the Bible is... He's drawing a parallel between Eve here and the women in the church at Ephesus to whom he was writing who were seeking to lead rather than follow the men in the church. His point is that the sin of the Garden of Eden is repeated when men and women don't live out their God-given roles. So we must not see this and assume that this was a one-time deal. This pattern has been Reciprocated down through history in all of our lives, in all homes, in all churches. Men failing to lead. Women struggling to follow. Adam abandoned his God-given responsibility to lead his wife spiritually. Adam followed. Eve led. I love what Ray Ortland says. Both were wrong and together they pulled the human race down into sin and death. So it's easy to read this and think, man, Eve, come on. Eve, get your your act together for crying out loud. What are you thinking, Eve? No, 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 (laughs) no. Stop that. Men, if you're thinking that right now, please stop. You were right there, and you did nothing. (laughs) I love it. Again, Ortland, both were wrong, and together they pulled the human race down into sin and death. Ortlund goes on to note, isn't it striking that we fell upon an occasion of sex role reversal? Oh, how much wrong has happened because men and women haven't been who they were supposed to be. The order of creation goes like this. God, man, woman, beast, including the serpent. God, man, woman, beast. What's happening in Genesis 3 is a tragic reversal of the whole thing. The woman listens to the serpent, the man listens to the woman, and no one is listening to God. And then because everything is turned upside down, everything breaks as a result. So if things are askew in your marriage, husbands and wives, then deal honestly husbands with whether you're a servant leader and deal honestly wives with whether you're respecting and joyfully following and deferring to the leadership of your husband. In 1 Timothy 2, when Paul points out that it was Eve who was deceived, not Adam, he's making a really important point. Another point, in fact, he's not just saying that it was a sex role reversal that broke everything, though he is saying that. He says clearly in verse 14 of 1 Timothy 2 that Eve was deceived, not Adam. And we don't need to miss this. He's not saying, hey, Eve... Let's let's pile on Eve. No, 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 Don't, don't hear that. He's saying Eve was deceived. Adam did that willfully. Adam sinned willfully. He knew exactly what he was doing. He sinned with his eyes wide open. Think of it. God had honed Adam's powers, his reasoning powers, by having him name all the animals. What a vigorous intellectual exercise. Like we struggled to name our three kids. <laughs> Can you imagine naming the animals? Augustine said that Adam's mental powers surpassed the great philosophers as much as the speed of a bird surpasses a tortoise. Tortoises aren't fast. Adam flew past the smartest people in history when it came to mental and reasoning abilities. Yet here he is watching in fascination as his wife eats this fruit. Wondering what's going to happen. Oh, happen. Wondering if she'll die. He lets his wife take the first step into that abyss to see what will happen to her. Then, when it appears that nothing happened to her, he also took and ate. What a loving husband. Yeah, go ahead, baby. Go ahead. Yeah. I'll be over here. Let me know if you need something. Oh, you didn't die. Okay. I'll have some. The most brilliant man to ever live. Reasoned that breaking God's command could be done without consequence. So stop thinking that you're going to, like, outsmart God and get around, do an end around his word somehow. The most brilliant man to ever live thought it was a good idea to let his wife go first. Oh, the folly that Satan leads us into. Eve follows the snake. Adam follows Eve. No one follows God. And everyone is still paying for this foolishness. Now verse 7 goes on to tell us what the initial result of their foolishness was. So she ate, then he ate. Verse 7, then the eyes of both were opened. It's not like they were blind. It's like they didn't see everything the way it was. They knew that they were naked. The eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So what Satan told them was half true. They did not die that day. Adam would go on to live 930 years. Yet Adam and Eve did die that day in the sense that their communion with God and with each other died. Their eyes were opened. They received the knowledge they sought. They suddenly saw their nakedness as shameful and sought to cover themselves. Their innocence was gone. Now instead of love, it's fear and guilt and shame that gripped their hearts. Loving God or each other would no longer be easy. And the shame was so overpowering that they suddenly felt the need to cover their bodies for the first time. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Again, remember last week, The thought of clothing had never crossed their minds. Now all of a sudden, something happened in the core of their being that was so overpowering that they had this brand new idea that they should cover themselves up. And this, of course, is the standard way we all try to get rid of shame through concealment how do we conceal our shame let me give you a few ways and you you decide listen carefully you decide what way are you concealing your shame we conceal shame by looking at the outside of things instead of the inside of things we compare ourselves with others and then use these superficial comparisons To cover up who we really are. We look at outside trivial things. Minimizing what's true. On the inside. Or we conceal sin by focusing on corporate sin rather than individual sin. Focusing on corporate sin rather than individual sin. What do I mean? Well there are no doubt. Societal and structural things in our world that are sinful. I just prayed earlier about um, the government of China actively committing genocide against a whole group of people. And we're all like, "Yeah, Olympics! By the way, if you watch Olympics, fine. I personally am not. But that's not cool. Committing genocide, not cool. China's doing it. Societal and structural sin... It is a theme. But what we have to then come in and say behind that truth is that structures haven't emerged apart from us. Structures don't just appear out of thin air. Every structure or institution or government or business is a projection of what we are. Amen. And they're all broken because we're all broken. Sin starts in our hearts, not at the office or in the halls of Congress. One other example of this for you avid NFL fans, uh, which I claim to be one. um, There's a thing called the Rooney Rule, which says every team must interview at least one minority when they're interviewing head coaches for their head coaching vacancies. And what's happened is teams are basically doing that just to check off the rule. Seventy percent of the players in the NFL are minorities. Out of the 32 teams, there's one minority coach. Do you see something slightly off? So these minority minorities are interviewed and then politely dismissed. And finally, one of them said something this week. So the system is askew. What I'm saying is, it's easy to say, the system is bad. Burn it burn it all down. Rather than say, oh, the system reflects my heart. The system is a, a projection of what we are as people. Let's start there and then move into the corporate things, the societal things, the structural things. So we conceal sin by deflecting our sin and looking at structural sin. We also conceal our sin and our shame through the safety in numbers approach. The safety in numbers approach. We think that because everyone has done what we've done, our evil is excusable. Our logic is that because everyone has failed the exam, then the exam was obviously too hard. And so God's going to grade it differently. But that's not the way God grades. We also conceal our sin and cover our guilt by assuming that time will remove it. This is a big one for me. I don't know about you. We assume that time will conceal, cover up, Our shame and our guilt. The late pastor James Montgomery Boyce said this. It's it's too long to, it's too good to pass up. I want to read you this paragraph. He says, quote, we see this, this concealment through time, in the way we talk about some wrong done in childhood or some nearly equally distant period in our past. We act as if this is of no present concern. At times we even laugh about it. Is God laughing? Is God unconcerned? He says, One of our problems is that we are creatures of time who possess highly selective memories. Thus, although we may remember the wrong itself, we tend to forget the hurt it caused other people. God is not a creature of time. Everything, including the wrong that we so easily dismiss, is present to Him and is an abomination to Him. Time does not eradicate it. The only thing that eradicates it is the blood of Christ, which purifies us from all sin. End quote. So, brothers and sisters, friends, what wrongs done by you or to you from your distant past have you filed filed away as not relevant anymore? What ways have you hurt people or been hurt by people that you haven't dealt honestly with? What sins in your family history have yet to be named? Why do you assume that the passing of time has made them any less relevant to your life, much less to God. Is God not, is he unconcerned, Boyce says? No, he's concerned. He stands above time. He's still very concerned, even though you're not. As novelist William Faulkner said, the past is not dead, it's not even past. What's his meaning? His meaning is that the things driving your present are rooted in your past. The fig leaves of time don't cover the truth. Stop thinking that way. The fig leaves of time aren't covering up what's true. Name what is true and then let Christ come in and tell you what He thinks about you. Let Christ come in and heal you and redeem you and restore you. Let him cover up all that stuff with his redemptive power. You stop assuming that time has removed it. You bring him in and he'll cover it up for you in a way that time never will. You're like, John, it's been 30 years. All the more reason for you to start naming what's true. You're like, John, I wasn't a Christian yet. And my parents weren't either. All the more reason for you to name what's true. Time isn't going to magically heal your heart. Ever. But Christ will. He can and He wants to. Let Him heal the things you've been stuffing down for so long. Practically, this means talking to a brother or sister in Christ. It means today you say, hey, can we go have lunch? I need to tell you something. Please pray for me. Please listen to my story. It means you say, hey friend, hey husband, hey wife, hey sister, hey brother, please hear me out on this. Time has not healed this wound. Please help. And if someone turns you down, please come and see me. If our elders... Jared and I can be listening ears. If we can listen and pray and cry with you, we would love to. Ladies, maybe you'd like to talk with one of our wives. They would be excellent sounding boards and listeners and servants ready to help you walk through a process of healing. The point here is that all of our attempts to conceal Our shame are just as ineffective as Adam and Eve's. Eventually, we have to face reality. Eventually, we have to tell the truth. Eventually, we have to stare our painful past in the face and say what is true. Eventually, we have to be honest about our nakedness before God. I'm emphasizing this because I am convinced that the serpent wants you to live under shame till you die. Things done by you, things done to you. Not either or, both. he wants you to live under the weight of shame that comes through these things until you die. Because why? Because when you're, when you're consumed with shame, you're on the ground and you're, use, you're, you're useless. You're ineffective. When you're on the ground... You don't have any desire to serve the Lord or love His people. Shame paralyzes us. Shame is the ultimate downer. It leads us to think that giving up is really the best option. It makes us want to hide, to curl up in a ball and just die. To not take any risk for God, to not take risk for the sake of love. Shame devours our souls from the inside out. How much of our suicidal ideation is fueled by satanically induced shame? Brothers and sisters, you're not alone. You're not alone. Can anything heal our sickness of shame? Listen to what Psalm 69 says. I love, uh, Dane Ortland says that, There's a blessed realism to the Bible. Amen? When you read the Bible, it's like the Bible's reading you. It gets us. Listen to Psalm 69. Tell me if this has ever been your experience. I know it's mine. You know my reproach, O God. You know my shame and my dishonor. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I am afflicted and in pain. Let your salvation, O God, set me on high. You who seek God, let your hearts revive. For the Lord hears the needy and does not despise His own people who are prisoners. Do you see all the promises there? As I said last week, the only thing the Lord needs from us is our need. The Lord will hear you and come to you when you're honest about your need. As long as you pretend you don't have shame, the Lord's help will be... ready and waiting, ready and waiting for you to come to this kind of place that the psalmist talks about. You who seek God. You who seek God. The Lord hears the needy and does not despise his own people who are prisoners. The Lord doesn't despise you for being a prisoner to shame. Why? Think about it. The Lord Jesus himself despise the shame of the cross. When Jesus died, he was naked. Okay? Pictures have the little loincloth on him. He was naked. The Romans crucified Jesus. They did any crucifixion, not just to kill people, but to shame them while they killed them. Putting the crosses along the roadways, not way up high, but you know, basically eye level, so that people could literally walk by and spit in your face and jeer you and make fun of you while you died slowly. Jesus knows something about shame, doesn't he? He knows something about it. He willingly, this is the difference though, he willingly took that for you on purpose, your name written in his, wo- in his wounds. Everyone who runs to him, who flees to him and just says, help, <laughs> help, I'm needy, help, is given garments to cover the shame is given a purity that will never be removed, a purity that isn't contingent on your performance, a purity that you will have till the day you die and stand before him. Right now, sisters and brothers, right now you're pure before God. Why? Because you wear Jesus. You wear him like a robe. So when God sees you, he sees Jesus. The only way our shame will ever be truly covered is if God covers it. This is what he did for Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. We'll learn in a few weeks. God made garments of skins. Blood had to be spilt for their shame to be covered. God had to make the garments. God had to kill something. Because their man-made garments would never conceal their shame. God would always see through them but everyone who puts on the garments of Jesus Christ. The righteous robes of Christ's righteousness will never have anything to hide. I love how Paul Tripp says this. He always says, Christians should be the most honest people on earth. Why? Because everything about you has already been covered by the blood of Christ. Everything. You're like, John, I don't know. There's that one thing that no one knows about. There's that whole thing. There's that whole lifestyle. There's that thing that no one knows. I've never put words to Guess what covers it? The blood of Jesus Christ. And interestingly, the blood washes. It washes. It cleans. It purifies. And it changes your heart forever. Everyone who descends with Christ into the death, excuse me, into death through repentance, and then, as raised through faith to a new life, will be given new, everlasting, beautiful garments. Does this describe you? Does this describe you? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, the mystery and the power and the beauty of what Christ has done for us is inexhaustible. Lord, may we never get tired of talking about what Jesus has done. Lord, I pray right now for those who are struggling, maybe secretly or not so secretly, those who are struggling to feel accepted and loved and cherished by you. Holy Spirit of God, help them to feel the warmth of Christ's righteousness. Help them to feel the strength of your arms. Help them to feel the tenacity of your love. Help them to feel the the zealousness that you have for their good. Help them to feel your happiness in them. Help us to be a people who don't conceal shame, but run to the cross again and again, saying what needs to be said, saying what is true, and resting in the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Lord, make Your blood precious to us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.